Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. Today's cool fact of the day is that after you eat too much, your hearing is less sharp. If you're heading to a concert or to a musical after a big meal, you may be taking away from your enjoyment of that experience. Try eating a smaller meal if you need to keep your hearing pitch perfect. Today, we have a great interview with Chris Burka, the founder and president of Advanced Brain Monitoring, a company devoted to producing the most powerful brain monitoring devices in the world for personal use. If you're one of those people interested in the best ways to hack your brain for better performance in any aspect of life, this show is for you. We also talk about how you can train yourself to sleep less and really some fascinating things that you probably didn't know about what we can do to help you with your brain. We also have a really good listener Q&A today where we discuss the effects of freezing on produce, whether or not to worry about elevated LDL cholesterol, and whether or not coffee can cross-react with gluten or affect people who are gluten-sensitive or celiac by mimicking the effects of gluten. We close with our biohacker report where you will hear a brief summary of two new pieces of research that help you improve creativity by living out common metaphors and by fighting inflammation and toxins with gelatin. On the blog, we've got some really cool stuff coming out. We have the new Bulletproof Chef cookbook, 
that's coming out within about a week. We have a book on 101 sleep hacks, and we've got a new rev of the Bulletproof Diet all coming out in the next little while. So it's been a very content production heavy last few weeks for us, but we're really stoked with what came out. Army, what biohacks have you been working on this week? I've been researching and using light therapy to improve my sleep. Last weekend, I had to stay up about three hours past my normal bedtime to 12 a.m. So to improve my sleep and performance over the next few days, because I was still training pretty heavily for my triathlons, I stared at the sun for 10 to 15 minutes each morning when I woke up, and some days I went on a walk in the early morning to try and get as much sun exposure as possible. For me, the light therapy was very transformative, and I've been able to feel better than I usually do on less sleep. This is one of those hacks that is kind of preliminary at this point, but we're going to be doing some more research and publishing some articles on that in the next few months. What about you? What have you been up to? Well, first, I've got to ask, you stared at the sun for 15 minutes? Not directly at the sun, I'm hoping. No, just kind of groggily peered out the window as much as I could in my early morning tired state. Okay, there we go. There's the sun-gazing yoga meditation practice where you can actually teach yourself to gaze directly at the sun, but I was a little concerned there if you were starting on 15 minutes of looking right at the sun because uh, I really wouldn't like you to be blind. Uh, Good move. Yeah. As we are recording the show, I'm sitting under a thousand watts of halogen light that's shining down on me. Um, I've found that having really bright light during the day keeps my circadian rhythm working really well, so I think that you're onto something there, Armin. I've been working on more cold thermogenesis this week. I bought a livestock tub like you'd use for feeding cows or horses that's uh, actually bigger than my bathtub and fits outside. So I filled it with a hose and tossed a a couple 10-pound blocks of ice in and sit in there. And it's really cold, to be perfectly honest. But I got exposed to a pretty significant level of uh, mycotoxins in a, a moldy building. And being someone who's had that happen to me several times, I'm hypersensitive. And the normal thing that happens to me after I go into a place that has one of those things I'm really highly allergic to is that you can see like a visible swelling on my forehead and I feel absolutely drugged. But one of the things cold thermogenesis does is it dramatically improves your ability to process toxins. So normally I'd have been basically out of commission for probably up to 12 hours after I woke up and the next morning I'd be okay. But as this was, because I'd soaked in cold water first, within three and a half, four hours, I was completely back to normal, which is unheard of for me. So I basically increased my resilience substantially using cold thermogenesis this week, and I'm looking forward to continue doing that. After you're done using that tub for cold thermogenesis, you can use it to store maybe a day or two's worth of butter for you too. (laughs) Maybe I could bathe in butter while I'm doing cold therapy. I'm sure there has to be some sort of therapeutic benefit from that. (laughs) Cool. Now we're going to have our exclusive interview with Chris Burka from Advanced Brain Monitoring. Chris Burka is the CEO and co-founder at Advanced Brain Monitoring, or ABM. She has over 25 years of experience managing clinical research and developing and commercializing new technologies. She's the co-inventor of nine patented and 11 patent-pending technologies, and she's the principal investigator or co-investigator for grants and contracts awarded by the National Institutes of Health, DARPA, ONR, and NSF that provided more than $22 million of research funds to advanced brain monitoring. 
Chris joins us today on Upgraded Self Radio to talk about how you can use advanced brain monitoring technology to improve your physical and mental performance. Chris, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks. Excellent opportunity to be here and um, inform people of how they can optimize their brain states. Tell us, what is advanced brain monitoring and how did you think of this? Well, um, it was an idea that really has evolved over several decades. Um, I started out my career as a research neuroscientist and um, ended up quite almost by accident. It was on a very straight academic path to be a professor. Um, and when Ronald Reagan came into office, he cut the NIH budget, and the lab that I was working in lost all of their funding. And I was basically on the street and found an opportunity with a startup company, um, had never really envisioned myself as an entrepreneur or a business person, but I ended up working with that company from day one, came in uh, with a scientist and just a few business execs and grew the company to a $20 million company, public company, and found that I really, really enjoyed the pace of a commercial endeavor um, and that, you know, that my talents and skills were better suited actually to the business world than, than to straight academic science. Um, but I was working in, an, in a different area on, on forensic toxicology. Um, that particular company was not my personal uh, interest. So as soon as um, I had put together a little bit of a nest egg, um, I got together with uh, three other people. Um, and wanted to go back to and revisit some of the work that I had left behind as a researcher. Um, and our very first product was inspired um, by one of my former customers at, at the other company uh, that was called Psychometics. Um, and they, we, we had been doing um, pre-employment drug testing using our hair analysis for them. Uh, and we were able to analyze all sorts of drug ingestion as it accumulates in the hair. Um, but he said to me at lunch one day, if you re what I really, really need is an assay for drowsiness and fatigue because there's no way to really measure it, and it's, and it's the one effect um, that is causing more problems in my workplace than, than any, any drug um, has, has ever caused. So, you know, that was kind of like a little light bulb for me, and, and the first uh, product that we developed was a real-time EEG or brain-based monitor for the drowsiness alertness continuum um, for truck drivers and railroad operators and shift workers. Um, and basically, uh, we have that device today on the market. Um, it's, it's fairly simple. With just a few sensors on the head, uh, we can detect where you are in the continuum from highly alert and highly focused to, um, you know, starting to get fatigued to actual sleep onset. And all of that's done, uh, processed in real time, and you can provide feedback either to the person themselves um, uh, through all sorts of mechanisms, or the feedback can go to a supervisor who may be monitoring um, to make sure that everybody's alert enough to be doing their job, or you can interface with a, a machine and actually control your, a machine with your brain. So if the machine sees that the uh, operator is getting fatigued, 
uh, it can go into auto control or autopilot or or again provide some sort of alert. So that was that was the first the inspiration for for the product and the company, um, and and we've built up the company over the last decade. Uh, we now have twelve different products um, on the market uh, that share. Uh, probably the main commonality is that we've developed these really easy-to-use mobile wearable um, uh, platform technologies that allow you to I, interpret physiological signals. I, I have to ask a, a question here. I, I mean, I, I've had my own EEG at home as a, a quote, layperson biohacker since 1998, but I've never really found wearing EEG all day, even with like the ZO sleep monitor, to, to be particularly sexy or attractive or even barely normal. Uh, how do people look when they're wearing one of your devices? Well, that, that particular device, we, we've embedded it into a baseball cap. Um, you know, uh, our systems are really, I don't know if you have some photos, but, but they're very lightweight. They weigh less than three ounces. They go under any kind of headgear. Um, I don't know that yet. There's a fashion statement, but we're we're always looking to improve um, the look and feel and and comfort while maintaining the accuracy of the signal detection. Do you have people who wear these these most of their waking time, just as a general matter, as a general practice for monitoring their brains? We we have people who wear them daily for some period of time. But what's, what's interesting about all our systems is that you, what you're trying to do is retrain the brain. So, uh, for example, one of the problems with drowsiness, and again, this is a simple example compared to some of the other things that we're trying to do, but is that the more chronically fatigued you are, the less you're in touch with or able to tell someone that you're tired. Um, and, you know, this has been shown in study after study where, you know, you ask people if they're fatigued, and the more tired they are, particularly over long, if it's chronic over long periods of time, you sort of lose that, that ability to detect your own fatigue levels. Uh, so part of what we're trying to do is, is retrain you and retrain your brain to a more healthy, I mean, we're all, we all drive ourselves to extremes. Um, no one probably gets the sleep that they want, and when they do, they may not get the quality sleep that they need. So what, part of what we're trying to do with these systems is to bring you back, bring, bring the information about your body under your conscious control again. So in many cases, you know, we're, we're designing these systems to help retrain. A, a, it's like a habit that uh, has been worn into a neural pathway, and you want to reestablish a healthy neural pathway. So if I'm wearing a baseball hat with EEG sensors in it and I'm working to retrain myself to be in a healthier, more performance state, how do I know when I'm, quote, doing it right? Like, what's the feedback loop from the baseball cap to my consciousness? Sure. Well, I mean, we have a variety of ways that we deliver feedback. One of the simplest one is we have a little haptic buzzer that you can clip onto your shirt collar, and it's just like the buzzer that's in your cell phone. Um, and, and you can take in quite a bit of information on, on that haptic or tactile channel. So we can give you, uh, we could give you just, you know, long buzzes when you're starting to get fatigue or short buzzes 
um, you know, if you're if you're in a transition state, um, we've done a lot of work with visual feedback. So, you know, if you want to do sit, if you're in a driving simulator, we can we can create all sorts of simulating visual displays, or you can use auditory feedback. And auditory feedback is pretty much unlimited, right? Because you can record speech messages and and actually talk to people. Um, or you can have various sounds, you know, some that people find pleasant and some that they find unpleasant. That's what we've done with some of our drowsiness alarms is start with pleasant sounds, gentle sounds, and then if you continue to fall asleep, the sounds get increasingly obnoxious. So you, you can deliver the feedback through any sensory modality. It sounds like you've taken some neurofeedback technologies where people might typically sit in a dark room and do neurofeedback, but you've incorporated them with daily, more normal activities that aren't necessarily just about working on the brain. It's about doing what you were going to do before and having better performance. And that's actually that's really, really cool. Do you have like business people, public speakers, mothers, fathers, like people who are not necessarily truck drivers or operating giant cranes use this stuff? Well, we have done quite a bit of work with the military, and in fact, our adaptive peak performance trainer was based on pro profiling expert marksmen and competitive marksmen, and so we, you know, essentially used them as the model for the the perfect uh, brain-body interface, and then um, took those algorithms and used those to to train novices, both civilian, military, and law enforcement. Uh, to reproduce that state uh, that we that we observed in the experts prior to taking a perfect shot, so we have done quite a bit of work with the, wow. with the military. We're starting to work now with more with professional athletes. Um, we're working with golfers and archers. Um, again, done you know work with with rifle marksmanship um, as well as some of the other marksmanship skill training. If I wanted to say, sign up for this because I thought it sounded pretty cool. And believe it or not, a good number of listeners today might be of that mindset. There are a lot of very you know, performance-oriented, tech-friendly people who hear a podcast. Is this something that you can get your hands on as a motivated layperson, or is this something that's really going to be in a clinical setting? Not quite yet in terms of widespread distribution. Um, we we do have some ongoing studies, so you know we always encourage people to sign up for our research studies. We are um, an FDA manufacturer, ISO certified laboratory. We have multiple medical devices on the market, and so that's really our starting place in terms of the systems that we build, the quality of the systems, and the distribution has been primarily to medical labs and research labs. Um, we do have a couple products now, like the Adaptive Peak Performance Trainer, that we're looking at getting to a consumer market. And that's a challenge for us because it involves, you know, different manufacturing processes and looking at, you know, much wider distribution than we do with, with medical equipment. Um, but we, we do hope to get the, the Adaptive Peak Performance Trainer out uh, for consumers as well as um, another product that we have that's called Somneo, which is a napping product, um, and it provides you a uh, environmentally closed-in napping environment um, with uh, 
sounds, um, as well as uh, blue light for waking you up to combat sleep inertia, slight heating around the face that helps you fall asleep more quickly, and then, of course, EEG to stage the nap and give you the optimum nap in the shortest period of time. So that's another product that we, we've designed from the beginning um, with the hope of having it be a consumer product. I was the CTO of one of the quantified self companies that does a 24-7 heart rate monitoring. And mm-hmm. it's incredibly difficult for sort of FDA-oriented med tech companies with you know, HIPAA compliance and all that in order uh, to be able to make that transition to being $99 or $200 consumer devices. Right, right. Uh, do you see that happening within your company, or is that sort of such a big gulf in cultures and production and everything else that, that we're going to see sort of a bifurcation of the med tech industry into consumer med tech and clinical med tech with a few crossovers? I think that the big question there is whether you can go to manufacture in China or India um, or, you know, other places where it's inexpensive and still maintain the quality of the electronics components. Um, you know, fortunately for us, we've had a, a sufficient amount of government investment, uh, both from the NIH and, and from um, some of the military organizations like DARPA, so that we've built all of these algorithms and we have, an ex- we have a database of fa- thousands of subjects that we've run sleep studies on and daytime performance studies on. Um, and so all of that intelligence can go into the products. Now we have to figure out, you know, can we maintain um, the quality of in, in mass manufacturing? And I, I, it's a challenge. And, and you know, it's, it's something that we're looking at very closely right now. You know, we can certainly build products that are in, you know, that we can sell in the $500 range, but to get down to a real consumer product to, you know, 99 or 199 which is what most consumers are willing to pay for, you know, one or another of these products, is, that's, a, that's a big leap. And maybe we're not the right company to do it. So, um, you know, we're, we're always looking for alliances and partnerships um, and, and ways that we can get these products to the most people, uh, we, you know, essentially for us, we, we want as many people in the world to take advantage of these products as possible. Chris, I can't wait to see one of these at Best Buy, and that makes perfect sense. Going back to what we were talking about earlier about how people can use these, let's assume that these products are widely available in the future. How can somebody like an athlete or a programmer or anybody use one of these technologies to improve their performance? How can an athlete use it to improve their physical performance? How could a business person use it to improve their mental performance? How would they exactly sure, do sure. it? Sure. Well, we developed this whole concept of the, the INET, the Interactive Neuroeducational Technology Platform. And the way it was designed was to first assess. So we, we would really like to get a quantitative assessment of your sleep um, with one of our sleep systems, and then we want to get a quantitative daytime assessment um, generally, we like to do that with having you perform a, a set of cognitive tasks that where we've profiled, again, thousands of people. Um, we know from our experience now that, uh, for example, there are many, many 
negative characteristics or negative predictors for skill learning and for almost any, any type of new learning. One of those is high anxiety levels, and that's readily measured with the heart rate variability. And, you know, we found um, you know, that people have chronically high anxiety levels have a, a very difficult time um, in marksmanship skill learning, for one, but, but in, in across fields and, and exercises. So the very first thing you do is if you identify someone with high anxiety is you, is you teach them cardiorespiratory control um, to, to be able to control that heart rate and that high anxiety level. Uh, the other thing that we've seen is a feature that we call visuospatial processing speed, which, which is an integration of brain and motor skill. Um, and again, that one's fairly easy to assess um, and also somewhat easy to improve um, if you identify it as, as something that's lacking. So we look for um, issues with sleep, um, and we have various approaches that we can use to better train you to sleep more efficiently. Um, and then we look for deficiencies in your, in your daytime assessment. Uh, and so like I said, two of the obvious ones would be high anxiety levels or, or low visuospatial processing speed and integration. And those are things that we can easily train up for you and then improve your performance going forward. And, and I, I bring those two up because those seem to generalize across many, many different types of skill. We've looked at um, chemistry learning, a, a whole variety of uh, math, science, and engineering learning. We've looked at skill learning, as I talked about, um, and, and some of the positive and negative predictors. And obviously, if you're fatigued and you're not sleeping adequately, it has a whole ripple effect across your emotional well-being, um, certainly your cognitive and mental well-being. Um, and so we, that's generally one that we start with first because it's one that's also the easiest to address if you're having sleep issues. Then we've looked at um, doing combinations of things, for example, um, nutraceuticals. So we did a very large study, again, with the military, uh, looking at omega-3 fatty acid supplements and using that, you know, in combination with neurofeedback training to mitigate some of the effects of chronic sleep deprivation. Uh, and I think that's another area that's, that's really fascinating is that there are, you know, all of these nutraceuticals that are now available in very pure forms um, that can be used to supplement, you know, various deficiencies in, in brain neurotransmitters. Um, and these are, again, wow. things that we can do you know, easily and quickly and improve, uh, you know, overcome depression, which is one of the reasons the military is interested in, and also overcome some of the effects of chronic fatigue. It's really interesting. I write a lot about sleep hacking, and I talk about what to use from a nutraceutical perspective to get more efficient sleep, to recover more quickly. And I, I just love that you're, you're quantifying that. There's also a, a study that we're just planning right now at Stanford University where we're going to be testing a particular combination of fatty acids with a coffee that's low in biogenic amines, particularly around mm -hmm. intelligence enhancement and alertness enhancement, where you know the type of coffee and the type of fatty acid changes things. I'm really intrigued that you've done this with EEG because we're going to look at you know, raw performance on tasks. I, uh, I may hit you up afterwards to see if there's an angle there to uh, 
to maybe use some sure. of your equipment in that we study. Would love but to, I, I'm, to I'm really add intrigued. In we have this um, standardized, it's, we call it the Alertness and Memory Profiler. It's uh, a, a very simple EEG system with uh, neurocognitive tasks that we now have running on a, an iPad or, or an, an Android tablet, <laughs> not to just select Apple. Um, and we found that the, you know we can use the EEG metrics um, to get very sensitive and specific measures of changes in alertness, processing speed, um, and and we have a great roadmap already of how those things are affected during both chronic and acute sleep deprivation. So we have run many studies wow. here where we kept people up for 48 hours and and tortured them, and then more recently looked at. Uh, chronic sleep deprivation where, you know, you basically get five hours of sleep per night for a month, uh, which is more common. Um, but so we have pretty good maps of what happens to people during sleep deprivation. And then, you know, now we can start to look at these mitigating factors like strategic napping plus omega-3s um, or, you know, tyrosine wow. is another study that's, that's going on. I did uh, five hours a night or less for two years straight just to sort of make okay. a point about what what's possible for the human body that's properly fed and properly cared for and trained with neurofeedback, which I, I've done a lot of. And uh, I actually seem to gain improvement across all domains, including like physical, I grew a six-pack. So I really wish I had your equipment back then. If if someone wanted to buy one of these, is your equipment in line with the cost of, say, a two-channel EEG, you know, say an, an entry-level few thousand dollars, or do you get up into the, the tens of thousands of dollars? Right now, we, we range from a low end of $5,000 up to $25,000, $30,000. So, as I said, we're still in the medical equipment domain. Um, the The... Peak Performance Trainer and the Somnio will be our first products that will be under a thousand dollars. Well, sign so me up for your peak, your beta test on those. I, I am really intrigued. Yeah, and uh, now, I think that's fascinating that you ran that experiment on yourself. Um, you know, we've been doing sleep research and sleep deprivation research for for ten years, and we're finally starting to get some traction in, you know, both both the military and, you know, kind of the general occupational medicine world recognizing that you can survive on five hours of sleep uh, per night, but you really need to be very, very careful about that sleep. It needs to be perfect sleep, and, and there are yeah. many things you can do in terms of supplements, um, you know, including a daytime nap, which really, you know, facilitates performance and a variety of other things. But it sounds like you already discovered that on your own. Well, I, I, I just love hearing someone with your level of experience at, at least admitting that sleep hacking is real. I mean, the average sleep researcher I talk to flat out says, that's dangerous, you need eight hours. And the data that says you need eight hours is a bit suspect to me. And that's eight hours without you know, medium and short chain fatty acids and you know, properly timed meals. And, and I didn't use napping very often, but naps. And just the list goes on. And so thank you for spending, you know, your time on that because it's a way of freeing up, you know, almost a whole nother life 
uh, I'm a, a vice president at a large internet security company. At the same time, I have this very popular blog and a book on epigenetics that I've written. And, you know, I'm actually able to have a family and spend time with them. And it's largely because I can sleep less without you know, destroying my brain or uh, having other problems that come from it. So I'm, I'm thankful that I've learned to do that over time. Right. And you can, and you can train yourself to do that. It's interesting because in every study that we've done, and we've done sleep deprivation studies, sometimes that include 200 participants, we generally find that there's a subgroup of people that can really plow through even 48 hours of sleep deprivation and, and maintain pretty high levels of performance. And then there's a subgroup at the other extreme who really can't make it through the first night. Um, and we always laugh because I, because those people probably don't enroll uh, too much in sleep deprivation studies to begin with. And then there's there's the majority of people who are who are in the middle, um, you know, who fight and and can maintain for some period of time, but eventually do, um, you know, find the need to sleep overwhelming. But what's interesting about that group, that first group, um, we call them the mighty men and women. <laughs> Um, is that when you look at their restorative sleep, so when they do get their catch-up sleep, they are extremely efficient in both getting to sleep quickly and getting through their sleep stages and sleep cycles very efficiently. So that's part of what we've tried to focus on with that Somneo product is can we teach people how to sleep more efficiently? So when you have that opportunity to, to take a nap or to get you know, a couple uh, sleep stages in, sleep cycles in, let's make sure that we create exactly the right sleeping environment and, and again, train your brain to sleep efficiently to be more like, you know, the, the, that group of people that are you know, relatively resistant to sleep deprivation. And we've made some really good I, progress I, in that area. Because I, I think you deserve the title of, of the, the grand queen of sleep hacking. I, I love <laughs> what you're saying there that you can actually, you know, you can train yourself to get more efficient sleep. And I, I have people I, I coach and they say, oh, it takes me 45 minutes to get to sleep because my mind is racing. I'm like, that's funny. It takes me four minutes to get to sleep because I've taught my mind not to race when I go to sleep. Um, and I did it really with heart rate variability training and with neurofeedback and here you are ready to come out with a product that does that like sign me up for that product because that is <laughs> something that has the chance to be quite transformative in people's lives wow yeah i think we were, we've been looking at the just the over the counter sleeping drug market is is substantial and growing we did a, a study um with the UCLA group from the Anderson school um, and just interviewed, and it was mostly college-age students, um, and over half of them were unsatisfied with the sleep that they were getting and had used mostly non-prescription drugs but some over-the-counter medications to try to get to sleep on a regular basis. So let's say some of those college students want to find a different way to improve their sleep, say using advanced brain monitoring. How could they use this stuff to improve their sleep? Like, Take us through the process of an average college student using one of these devices to improve their sleep. Sure. Well, the, 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 the Somneo is really designed so that anybody um, can, you know, essentially create the right environment for a nap anywhere. 
So it looks like a sleeping mask that goes around your, your head. It's very soft and comfortable. Um, and, and the first thing that it does is screens out all environmental light and sounds. Um, and then you program into it uh, how long you have available to take a nap. And then um, as you're trying, if you don't fall asleep right away immediately, it will turn on a little bit of heat, facial heating. And we found that on average that um, increases your sleep onset by about two minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually the same amount as you get from most prescription hypnotic drugs. Um, and then once you're asleep, if you only have, if you have half an hour or less to take a nap, then we take you into stage two sleep as quickly as possible and keep you there. If you have an hour or an hour and a half for a nap, then you can go through an entire sleep cycle, and that's really ideal because then you go stage one, two, and then you go into deep sleep, which is stages three and four. That's your slow-wave sleep, um, very important for healing and, and uh, restoring enzymes, uh, any kind of uh, physical uh, generation of en uh, brain enzymes. Um, and then after that, you go into your REM sleep, your dreaming sleep. And that's, that's a full sleep cycle. Uh, and ideally, you could go through an entire sleep cycle, and then we wake you up with some alerting sounds. And as I said, the blue light um, it shines into your eyes and uh, keeps you from getting that grogginess feeling, that sleep inertia. If, you're, if you only have a short time for a nap, you never want to go into slow-wave sleep because uh, if you wake somebody up in slow-wave sleep, you, you have this horrible groggy fe feeling that can last for many hours and actually destroy, defeat the whole purpose of the nap. And it's better to wake somebody up at the end of a sleep cycle. So, so the whole idea with the Somnio is to pretty, pretty much instantly create the optimum state for a perfect nap. Um, and you can use it any time. So if you, you know, if you have time in the afternoon, uh, you can use it at night before you go to bed. Um, but then by repeatedly using this, we'll retrain your brain to better use your time for napping or more efficiently. Um, the only thing with the college students is I think they said they were only willing to pay, what, $199? $199 was what they were willing to pay for it. That, that's always the problem there. The people who can benefit most from some of these technologies are the ones who are least able to afford it. Uh, any chance I could get one of these for my two-and-a-half-year-old when it's nap time? <laughs> Not been tested on babies yet, but, but on sleepy parents. Yeah, I think it would it would probably be safer on sleepy parents. Uh, but I do know that if, if you are looking to build neuroplasticity around sleep, starting younger makes it a little bit easier. Absolutely right. And the last thing you want to do is start the habit of taking either prescription or over-the-counter medication to get to sleep because we know that you become tolerant and that you continue to need it. And it's probably going to add up to more than $199 pretty quickly as well. But it's, yeah, it's, it is going to take totally. some initiative. I mean, you really have to be somewhat motivated to, to – I mean, the technology is going to help you get there, um, but it's not exactly the same thing as taking a drug. Um, so part of this is an education it, process, too. I tell you, Chris, there's a, a big difference. You know, I'm, I'm 39 
you know, I, I have a young family and people in my generation, you know, I've been doing this since I was in my mid twenties and people in my generation generally thought I was nuts, but the number of people <laughs> who, who come to the podcast and the blog from the under 30 crowd, and even the, the people who are 20, 21, who are phenomenally interested in this and, and understand that if they invest in learning these behaviors now, that they get a whole lifetime of better performance, it's huge. Like, like consciousness has changed for, for people. And I, I wish that, my, that I had known this stuff when I was that young rather than sort of stumbling around and finding it. So I, I think you may find that there is a waiting market for Somnio as you know, the current crowd of people gets careers and all that because they are eager for this stuff. It, it's very cool. Yeah, I think that's great. And and the whole revolution a, in you know moving healthcare into the home, I think, is another area where we're going to be able to plug a lot of these devices into you know whatever your choice is for your home monitoring system, and you know really eliminate the need for a lot of hospital stays um, or clinic stays um, by being able to connect with your doctor anywhere in the world. Chris, have you thought of giving a talk at the upcoming Quantified Self Conference in uh, in September in the Bay Area? No, I was not aware of that. Um, can you send the, us the, the information? The Quantified Self Movement, yeah, I'll send it to you after the show and we'll post a link to it. I'm one of the kind of leader spokespeople types in, in that group. And it, it's a group of people, we have about maybe 500 people who show up to the conference We've had our first annual conference last year, and we have monthly meetings around the around the globe. But these are people who are actively tracking the state of their brain and their body and their behaviors, collecting data and then visualizing the data in order to understand more about what they're doing and then to make changes in it. And your understanding of sleep and some of these other brain patterns would be really interesting there. And this is the group that's bridging med tech and sort of clinical systems into consumer systems. So you might find it's a great place for you to both do competitive intelligence, but also to help uh, show people what they're capable of. And uh, I think that it would be both of benefit to everyone else to have you there, and you'd probably learn a few things, too, for your business. Sure. It sounds like a great opportunity. Well, I'll hook you up with that after the show. But there's one question I've been okay. sort of uh, holding back because I, mm-hmm. I'm really interested. And that's the one about uh, Tibetan monks. I've been inspired by by various monks and meditators who are able to do things that, quote, mere mortals can't do. Like uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar sleeps an average of one to two hours a night and flies to a, a different city almost every day. Last year, I only flew 100 times. So he's got me beat on miles and he's got me beat on sleep. Granted, he has 25 million followers who do his breath work. But still, like he's an example of what we can do. And you've done some work, as I understand it, with Tibetan monks looking at what they can do and translating that into what we can do. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, I I personally am fascinated with meditation, all all types of meditative practices, and, and have been studying meditation for 30 years or more. We had a collaborator recently. She has a Russian last name, Maria. We'll have to give you the name, spell it spell it out for you. Um, she works half-time at Harvard and half-time at, at Singapore University. And she was invited by um, a group of Tibetan monks, or actually it's Tibetan nuns, it's an all-female um, facility, 
that are way up in the hills um, where the Chinese have not ravaged yet in Tibet. And they practice the tumo, the, the, the heat, generating heat. Um, and they have a big ceremony every year. Um, and she was invited to go to that and took our systems with her um, and acquired uh, a whole series of data from the nuns. Um, and it, some of the data that we've seen matches what is in the literature for Tibetan practices, where as opposed to seeing um, coherence and alpha and sometimes coherent theta activity, which you see with many meditative practices, where you see a you know, coherent pattern at first of alpha and then of theta throughout the brain. What you see in some of these practices, like the TUMO or really focused Zen concentration, is a gamma burst. So a gamma burst, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's, it's around 40 hertz. Yes. Um, it's a frequency that's been associated with learning new material, cre creativity. Um, uh, there's a number of different, different um, things that we've shown in, in animal studies. Um, it's probably generated subcortically in, in the hippocampus or, or in the midbrain, uh, but you see this huge burst of 40 hertz activity when they're actually starting to generate the TUMO. Uh, and, and that's also been seen in, in Tibetan monks that do the classic yantra visualization where they go into the yantra, the, the visual formation. Um, you, you see this 40 hertz activity when, they're, when they have a perfect visualization. That's one that I'm not sure that you can train using neurofeedback and recreate the state. I, it would be interesting to try. Um, I'm not sure that anyone has tried that yet. Well, one thing you, you can do, and I, I may know someone who's done some work on that. I, I did a, a seven-day intensive EEG training a, a while back, which was mostly around moving coherent alpha from the back of the brain to the front, which at the end mm -hmm. of the training gave me the same brain state as someone who's done 40 years of Japanese Zen practice uh, you know, on a mm -hmm. daily basis. Mm -hmm. And that was... It was pretty amazing, but I do run a, a 50 hertz current using cerebral electrical stimulation across my brain, and that is sort of the, the poor man's, I didn't learn it, but I put my brain into a 50 hertz state. <laughs> uh, this is just between my two earlobes um, using you know a programmable frequency generator that's powered by a 9-volt battery. And certainly the experience of amazing amounts of creativity and all has I've experienced that so it seems like it's inducible but whether it's trainable or not I don't have great data on it but but my experience with using EEG and all in order to simulate or learn some of those quote mystical states that we're capable of it, it's been I would say profound and it's been very performance enhancing is that your experience as well or I don't know it's kind of a strange question very much so <laughs> very very much so yes uh, we also, we have done a little bit of collaborative work with the Mind Institute group in Albuquerque where we did do mild electrical stimulation as well, uh, TDCS, transcranial direct oh, okay. stimulation. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I just got a TDCS unit about three or four months ago. Um, okay, very neat. So you really are into the, the brain hacking side of things too. Most people freak out when you hear, you know, I'm running electricity across my brain. But so you've done the feedback side and the stimulation side. 
what's right. the potential right. for TDCS here? Mild, very mild electrical current, barely perceptible. Um, but we did find that we could enhance, specifically enhance learning and memory. Um, and one of the things that we're doing now is, is linking our drowsiness algorithms to the TDCS so that you would only deliver it when you were starting to get fatigued, so to be somewhat, you know, judicious about it. Um, it's interesting stuff. And then the, the other area that I was, I was thinking about when you were talking about meditating is we've done a lot of work, and this I think is really the future, with um, interactions of, of two people or teams of three to five people where we look at the EEG coherence across the team members during different teaming exercises. And that's something that I, ex I have experienced experienced early on um, from, you know, group meditations versus doing, going home and doing it yourself is that there's a, you know, there's a real enhanced effect uh, when you meditate as a group. But the same thing, you know, you experience when a team is performing together perfectly. If you watch, a, you know, an ex, uh, uh, I think basketball is one of the best athletic sports where you see a team anticipating each other's actions and, and you know, it becomes a a dance where, you know, there, there's complete synchrony and harmony in, you know, the way they're interacting. So this is another area where we've, we've started to look at, can we um, look at some of these teaming states, or if, even if it's just a one-on-one -on -one interaction, uh, and can we make those states available um, so that you see, you have some feedback on how your team is, is coalescing or not. You may be one of the few people who could answer the question I'm about to to ask, and if you just don't know or haven't heard of it, just let me know. But okay. there's a book called The Warrior's Edge out there that was written by two uh, two generals when they retired a, a while back, and they explained how they did a, a shared neurofeedback session where each one of them had the signal from the other person's brain. So both of them were trained neurofeedback practitioners, and they found that when they listened to the other person's sounds and tried to get their brain to do it, when both their brains got into essentially the same state, that each of them became aware of, in their case, like top secret clearance level information that they weren't aware of before. And they flat out didn't write this book until they retired because they knew people would think they were crazy. And this, isn't, this is an anecdote in the book. The book has lots of other stuff. But have you ever experienced or heard of things like that, where people who are doing the equivalent of electronic-assisted group meditation somehow learn things about each other or from each other that they didn't know before, or is this just completely too crazy? No, there, there's already a, there's a literature on on the therapeutic interaction. So if you you monitor the psychophysiology of therapists and patients. Um, when they describe that they've had, you know, an excellent session, you will generally see synchrony both in, in their heartbeat as well as, as um, neural synchrony. Um, so, yeah, uh, there's, there's already somewhat of a literature on that. Um, whether so you would be able to get top, their... top secret information from someone, that I, I have not been, I have not experienced nor have I been involved with, but certainly... Um, empathy and um, ability to listen and understand um, 
yeah, there, there's already a literature on, on that for, at least for therapy sessions. I'm an advisor to the HeartMath Institute, and certainly I've seen the heart rate variability data, but I didn't realize that there was also data on neural synchrony. So when maybe one of our listeners is talking to a friend who's, who's in distress and you know, being a supportive friend, there's actually things happening in your brain, things happening in their brain, and we're kind of syncing things up there. Uh, yes. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty profound if, if you think about it. Is your equipment down the road going to be something that could quantify this? Where maybe, you know, if I'm wearing a yeah. hat that's wired and my friend is wearing one that's wired, that we might actually be able to, say, look at our iPhones and realize that our brains are doing the same sorts of things? Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of our long-term visions for this technology. Okay, now to take it one step further, I'm in a bar, I'm wearing a hat, and my brain's doing something cool. Is it going to sort of flag that the girl at the end of the bar's brain is doing the same thing as me, and then we would be compatible? I mean, it seems like that would be the ultimate dating application of all time. <laughs> you are not the first person to suggest that, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Can you Can you measure chemistry between two people by psychophysiological measures in real time? Probably. I don't know how much that would ruin the fun of the bar, though. I mean, unless you are in a techno-geek bar, maybe somewhere in Palo Alto. You know, that's what we feel now. But 20 years ago, I had my first online date, and I would tell people, like, Dave, only you of all people would use, like, a green screen terminal to pick up a girl. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but trust me, it's it's coming. And look, where, how many of my friends, right. you know, met their soulmate on Match.com? So I honestly would not be surprised if you know my grandkids were completely looking at their neural alignment with their date because it's so quick mm-hmm. and easy, and it's probably tied to some little video game. And so I I don't know, I I, I could be stepping out on a limb here, but I I bet a hundred bucks plus interest. <laughs> yep, I think there's a lot of possibility there. Okay, we have about 10 minutes left in the show, and I had no idea this was going to be such a fun and really futuristic interview. In the 10 minutes we have left, let's talk a little bit more about what other products are coming down the pipe that that you're comfortable talking about, and maybe what the FDA's role is going to be in allowing these into consumers' hands or blocking access to these technologies. What's your take on that? I don't know which direction um, the FDA is going to evolve into. I know that our experience with our first few products that were FDA cleared, it was very simple. Um, And more recently, it's been much, much, much more challenging. Um, Certain products like neurofeedback or, or even Somnio will probably, you know, get an exemption, so we really... You know, right now, all neurofeedback products in general are, are, you know, do not require the full FDA clearance. If we did something um, like TDCS, um, then we would definitely have to have FDA clearance. So I can't see which way the, the winds are blowing. You know, I understand the concerns of the FDA and why um, it's important to have you know, guidance and regulation. Um, it can be completely overwhelming for a small company, especially when you have, you know, lots of exciting technology and products that you want to get out to as many people as possible. Um, you know, we've been 
again, fortunate to have the funding to do some really large population studies, you know, to allow a lot of these technologies to get proven and, and to market. Um, but I can, I can see the regulatory process does slow things down. I, I don't know. It's kind of a mixed I, answer. I, I, you know, it's got pluses and minuses being in a regulatory environment. It really does, and there's there's two things that I've seen that our, our listeners may be really interested in, even though you could say oh, FDA regulation, what a boring topic, but it turns out we may have, we have two things that come about. One, there's a group of, of relatively young entrepreneurs who I met at the South by Southwest conference uh, where I gave a talk on brain hacking, and they have put together a $99 do-it-yourself TDCS kit. And it's not FDA regulated because it's a kit. You buy some components, they tell you what to solder to what, and right. when you're done, you have a full right, TDCS unit. Uh, so I'm sort of giving them some advice on you know, not ending up in jail <laughs> and not harming people and all. <laughs> and uh, I think they're really motivated people who actually see the potential and, and want to do good. That's one side where, okay, I'm not selling a medical device, I'm selling some, you know, some chips, and you, you do it. The flip side is, one of the, the Kleiner Perkins backed medtech startups I worked with decided that they would do all of their work in Singapore, where the government's totally open to this stuff and open to investment. So all their work is in Med yep. City in China or in India and the US is becoming like the last place you ever want to launch an innovative product. You just take it here after, you know, you're gonna overcharge for it because you've already done all your work on a market ten times bigger with no regulation to speak of. Are you seeing the same thing in your business or in the future? Sure. Like which, which of those sure. two directions will we go? You know, almost all of the new clinical trials, uh, we've been involved in many clinical trials in Australia and the EU. Um, Singapore, you're, you're correct. Singapore is a place that has invested heavily in medical electronics and, and bringing things to market quickly. And, and there's a lot of capital there. Um, so, I mean, we're fortunate to have our university collaborator there and, and expect to do quite a bit of additional work there. To change gears a little bit, one of the things I found really interesting about your website was something called Interactive Neuroeducational Technologies, or iNet. I was wondering if you could right. talk a little bit about how that works. Sure. So, so that's the concept there. Again, I, I started to talk about it and probably digressed a bit, but... The concept is to get first to get a profile or an evaluation to identify your strengths and weaknesses. And, and, and we have a couple elements of that, but one of the elements I didn't talk about was something that we call your psychophysiological control quotient. So people have different levels of being able to control their physiology. And, and one of the things that we've seen now in studying experts and as I said, we've, we've studied expert athletes, um, expert chemists and scientists. Um, we're now starting to study leaders, um, CEOs and other um, entrepreneurial leaders, um, military commanders. And one of the characteristics of expertise in general is this ability to control your psychophysiology. And it's pretty easy to measure. You know, do you have control over... Um, your your heart rate, your heart rate variability, your brain. Some people have this, we don't know if they're born with it, this skill, or if it's something that they've learned. Um, but, you know, some people have it, it very well under control and we can assess that. Um, the good news is that in hundreds of studies now, 
um, over 85% of the people that we've evaluated and started with can learn to exert control over their brain and body. Um, and, and, of course, you know, some to a greater extent and some to a lesser extent. And so that's one of the things that we try to do is, with INET technologies is to profile your strengths and weaknesses from, from a psychophysiological perspective. And then first, you know, as I said, if you're high anxiety or if you're low um, visuospatial processing, um, motor, motor integration, those are things that we can train you to do first before you go into some advanced skill training. And, and the whole notion of, of psychophysiological control, I think, you know, we talk about IQ and now we have, you know, emotional IQ. I think that another dimension of that, of capability, um, will be your ability to control your brain and body. So, so that's kind of where we're going with INET is identify strengths and weaknesses, uh, maximize the strengths, and then hopefully, you know, bring the weaknesses up to, to a better level um, so that you can um, excel in whatever, you know, performance endeavor you're involved in. Is this available sort of to consumers? Do I go to my psychiatrist, psychologist? Like, where do I sign up for this? It's not quite a product yet. That's some, it's, a, it's a model that's evolved, and it's actually a group of products, as I said, where we do a sleep assessment and a daytime assessment. Um, we have applied it in a variety of studies. We haven't quite formalized it as a, as a product, but we're looking at trying to make something like that web-based and widely available so that you would have, say, a little headband of sensors um, that has, the, like, we have uh, pulse box that goes around, uh, it's a headband pulse box with a few neural sensors, um, and you would, you would put that on and then log on to the web and download our, our profile, our neurocognitive profile, and then we would give you some feedback on your strengths and weaknesses, and then maybe even deliver a prescription for you that was essentially your neurofeedback prescription or your set of tasks. Um, that could improve, you know, that balance or whatever we saw was out of balance. And similarly, with the, with the sleep study, we already have the, the um, sleep device, which is not that much different than Zeo, a little more sophisticated. Um, but we can profile your sleep and, and give you some feedback on your sleep, and, and, and then hopefully we'll have the Somnio available to really enhance or uh, improve your sleep. So it's kind of a whole suite of, of products, and it's a concept that's, that we're evolving. It's evolving pretty quickly now. We've also done some work with um, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease and trying to get a very, very early detector so that, you know, again, that you can take as many interventions as possible um, before you start to have the serious cognitive decline. Wow, I I think we could go on for another hour at least because you're working on on some of the, the the fundamental things that that sort of cutting edge high performance people are interested in. Uh, in fact, I have a, a conference I'm going to be putting on later this year where I'm looking to have you know interactive neuro technologies around you know teaching your physical body and your mind body interface to work better. We'll have you know two or three day workshop with with listeners who actually you know, hands on hack themselves. Uh, so I'm going to ask you some questions after the show about um, whether any of this is, is ready for that. 
But in the meantime, we have a, a question that we've asked everyone who's been on the show. It's the last question on the show. And it's, what are the top three recommendations for anyone who wants to be as powerful and high performance in all aspects of their life? So this is everything that you know, both professionally and personally. Top three things people should do to basically kick more ass. What are they? Okay, I think number one is self-assessment and just being able to spend a few moments every day checking in with yourself. I, I think that we, we really fail to do that frequently. And, you know, we're, we're the best coaches and judges of our, of our own skill set and, you know, what, what we're capable of, but we don't listen to ourselves well enough or often enough. So that, that would be number one. Number two, I am an incredibly, you can probably tell, curious person, and I think that's one of the things that keeps me going is that I want to learn something new every day. And, and, you know, it can be something really simple or something very complex. And the, the people I know that are, you know, most motivated have some new challenge that they get up and do every day. Um, and then I guess the last thing is just for me, empathy and compassion are really key elements of a long, happy life. And again, once you're in tune with yourself, it's a lot easier to be empathetic and compassionate, but those are two traits that we somehow left behind somewhere that I think are really, really critical to, you know, long-term health and happiness. Well, Chris, you definitely sound like someone who's, who's both done some some serious meditation and neurofeedback, as well as someone who's, who's really learned to, to be high-performance. Thank you for being on our show today. I had a great time interviewing you. It, it's so cool to talk to someone who's really out on the cutting edge of what the human mind and body are capable of. Thank you for joining us. Oh, likewise, and thanks for the opportunity. Now we'll start with the Upgraded Self Radio listener Q&A. The first question comes from Anonymous. For the last five to six months, I switched over to a low-carb diet, mostly making up the calories with whey protein and lots of fat from olives, avocado, and grass-fed butter. It's not exactly bulletproof, but it's pretty close. While a lot of biomarkers have improved, my total cholesterol and LDL jumped up quite a bit. The levels that I believe you've mentioned feel are high. I'm a male, and I think you mentioned 220 as a reasonable limit. What next test or changes would you make if you were me? And then he goes on to give us his numbers, but those aren't really relevant for the listeners. So why don't you try and tackle that, Dave? It turns out that 220 is the old limit that doctors used before the cholesterol drug marketing people got involved and lowered it to 200. I'm not sure that 220 is particularly relevant because it's other factors that make a really big difference. The first thing that you should look at here, though, is getting tested again before you really start getting major changes. Your cholesterol levels can go up by 10 or 20 points on a weekly or even a daily basis, depending on what you eat and also what toxins you're exposed to. And as far as particle size goes, you're right. It's a much better indicator of cardiovascular disease than total cholesterol or even LDL cholesterol. 
But as we learned from our podcast with Chris Masterjohn and from his writing, the tests for oxidized cholesterol and particle size aren't accurate enough yet to produce a very reliable result. Your triglyceride to HDL ratio is pretty well correlated with your particle size, so that's a good metric for you to watch. So is apolipoprotein B, or APOB, and APOA1 ratio. So your best bet is to get another cholesterol test and verify the numbers. Even if they're the same, your total cholesterol level at 238 really wasn't that high. I wouldn't worry, even if they start to creep over maybe 250 or 275, as long as your ratios and your particles are where they should be. Since HDL for you is also high, in fact, it went from 60 to 70, I don't think you should worry much and you can actually be happy with your current results. There is a new test. I don't know if it's out yet, but there's a study from the American Heart Association, uh, people that I normally don't reference very much because they usually have things bass backwards. But this new study shows that a certain kind of HDL cholesterol was associated with a 60% increase in coronary heart disease. So the HDL in question that they were talking about had a large proportion of APOC3 molecules on the surface, which would be pro-inflammatory. If that test is available, it might be interesting if you're particularly worried, but as it is, if you have high HDL and your triglycerides are pretty low and your particle counts are all right, I think you're fine. Our next question comes from Maddie, and Maddie says, in the end of illness, Dr. David Agus recommends to buy frozen fruits and vegetables or fresh flash frozen over what many supermarkets just sell as fresh. He recommends the same for fish, for those of us a little further from the coast, or even foods from farmer's markets, unless it's in season and recently delivered. What's your take? I haven't read Dr. Agus's book yet, but I have read several of his articles, and we are trying to get him on the podcast, actually. And he has some very interesting work. One reason for him recommending flash, fresh, frozen vegetables over regular vegetables might be that because sometimes vegetables and other produce are picked before they're completely ripe, and if they're in their fresh form. If they're frozen, sometimes they're usually picked closer to what would be considered an optimal level of ripeness. Freezing fish makes sense, but most fish are frozen or packed in ice right away anyway, but the fermented varieties might be problematic, and I think Dave has some insight on that. Well, it turns out that Dr. Agus is one of the few other doctors or a few other public people who's paying attention to the formation of mycotoxins and amines in foods. What's going on with some of his recommendations there are that if you pick a vegetable, it's full of vitamins, it's fresh, and it's good. Now, if you instead put it in a hot pickup truck and you drive it, oh, eight hours or 12 hours, maybe you pick it the day before, you take it to a farmer's market where it sits in the sun. By the time you get it, you're getting a 48-hour-old or 24-hour-old vegetable that's been heated. The protein in that vegetable can actually break down into histamines and other biogenic amines. And mold, especially in things like corn on the cob, can be terrible. It can really grow a lot in just 24 hours. The best corn on the cob at the farmer's market, for instance, is packed in ice the second it's picked to prevent the fusarium that naturally infests almost all corn in the U.S. from growing more inside the corn. You can actually sometimes even taste a difference, and I can certainly feel a difference between fresh and not-so-fresh farmer's market corn. I was just going to say the best option is probably to grow your own food, but that obviously has some limiting factors for most people. 
most definitely. If you can grow it yourself, that's better. But I'm a huge fan of farmer's markets, but you need to pick food that actually looks fresh at the farmer's market. And fish is a major issue. People don't know this, but some long line fish, you know, the fish dies on the line, it gets towed through water. That fish, as soon as it dies, it's relatively high in a, a protein called histidine. And as it breaks down, the bacteria in the water or in the fish can turn that histidine into histamine. And you can get fish with so much histamine in it that it'll actually kill you if you eat it because of the effect it has on you. So the idea that you want fresh, never frozen fish is complete BS. You want fish that was dropped into ice cold brine the second it was caught. As soon as it comes out of the net, it should be frozen or at least in extremely cold water. That is going to give you the very freshest fish. Even for things like sushi, that fish has been frozen and kept at a very low cold temperature to kill parasites for a while. So fresh fish, unless you caught it yourself and you're eating it right then, ought to be frozen. The next question is from Nathan. Nathan says, I'm a big fan of your bulletproof coffee, but I'm also always trying to improve my diet, health, and performance. Recently, I came across this article and would love to hear your thoughts on it. And to summarize the article, it's from the healthyhomeeconomist.com, and it talks about how 10% of the proteins in coffee can cross-react with gluten if you are gluten-sensitive and celiac, and this might cause problems for people who have a sensitive gut. What is your take, Dave? When I first came across this research, I was really, really interested, and I dug in, and I actually looked at you know, what the lab did and the types of tests and all. It helps that my wife and I have ran an immune allergen testing company, like a, a blood testing company. What this comes down to is if you're testing for cross-reaction with gluten in coffee, it all comes down to what coffee did you use to test. We know from toxic mold research that people who are exposed to toxic mold very commonly, especially for penicillium and aspergillus species, will come down with strong allergies to both gluten and casein. In fact, I know this happened because I had that growing in my kitchen. And when they pulled the dishwasher out, my wife and I were exposed to toxic molds, and we both developed in the course of about 30 days pretty severe gluten and casein sensitivities, way beyond what we had before. So we know then that molds that grow in coffee also cause cross-reactivity with gluten. What I believe has happened in this instance is that the coffee that was tested, basically the substance that's being used, is almost certainly coffee that is low-quality coffee with mold in it. And we know that 91.7% of South American coffee from a recent year had toxic mold contamination. So if you're looking at coffee versus coffee that's poorly processed, you are going to get a different result when you're testing for gluten cross-reactivity. I know lots of people, including me, who are absolutely very intolerant to gluten. You give me a, anything with gluten in it, it takes me down. Like the first day I'm fine, the second day I feel like crap, and I just like takes three or four days before I'm back to normal. Yet I can drink all the bulletproof coffee that I want. And what I recommend to people is that if you are sensitive to gluten, that you, you can test it. See if coffee affects you or if it doesn't affect you. If you have a super damaged gut, maybe you don't want to drink any coffee at all until your gut's healed. But healing your gut shouldn't take that long with high-dose L-glutamine and some of the other things that are on the site. In fact, I would bet money that what's going on in this is that we're looking at cross-reactivity with molds that grow on coffee, not cross-reactivity with coffee itself, but we don't have data on that right now. If you have questions for the podcast, you can contact us on Twitter at BulletproofExec 
on Facebook at facebook.com slash bulletproofexecutive or by leaving a comment in the show notes for this episode. The show notes will be displayed on bulletproofexec.com along with links to everything we talked about in today's show. It's time for the Biohacker Report, my favorite part of the show where we bring you some of the latest research that came across our desks. Army, take it away. The first piece of research we have is a study called Embodied Metaphors and Creative Acts. This was published in the Journal of Psychological Science, and it was conducted at Singapore Management University by Liung et al. and colleagues. The study was examining whether or not common metaphors to improve thinking actually do improve creativity when the metaphor is performed in real life. For instance, people often say, on the other hand, when they're trying to explain a connection to a different result or idea. And this review looked at previous studies that had people performing different movements and postures to see if it could actually improve their creativity. In this review, the researchers had people gesture with both hands and with just one hand. The people who gestured with both hands thought of more creative ideas than those who gestured with just one. And this is basically the idea that because they're using more parts of their body, they're able to draw more connections between those, and somehow that actually helps the creative processes in their brain. They also found that people sitting inside of a box were less creative and thought of less creative ideas than those sitting inside of a box. That's the metaphor of thinking outside the box. They had people who would wander randomly, and they actually thought of more creative ideas than those who walked in a square. So the idea of being a square thinker or a very rigid thinker. People who sorted cards from two piles into one scored better on a test of convergent thinking or a test of how to bring two different ideas together, which was being acted out by sorting those piles into one pile. Another study in this review found that just watching a small avatar walk randomly improved creativity compared to the avatar walking in a square. This is some of the first evidence showing that embodying different movements associated with creativity actually has a positive effect on brain function. So the next time you're trying to be a more creative thinker, actually act it out. Maybe walk in a circle or walk randomly in your yard and then try and think of something. The next biohacker report for today is from the American Journal of Physiology and is research done by UNC. And it's titled, A Diet Containing Glycine Improves Survival and Endotoxin Shock in the Rat. One of the things that we look at on the whole bulletproof diet and the whole bulletproof regimen is about increasing resilience. And one thing that is a great measure of resilience is whether or not endotoxins kill you. We know that things like cold exposure can dramatically increase survivability to things like endotoxins. Uh, Wim Hof and the Iceman certainly shows some things like that. But in this study, they looked at glycine, which is a common amino acid, to see what it did to survival. Glycine is the main amino acid that you'll find in gelatin, and it's known for being anti-inflammatory and healing to the body. So this study looked at how glycine supplementation affected rats' ability to handle toxins. They actually injected these toxins from E. coli bacteria directly into the rats. One group of rats ate a diet of 5% glycine, and the other group just ate normal rat chow. After 24 hours, 50% of the rats eating regular chow had died, but not a single rat in the high glycine group perished. When the rats were injected with bacterial toxins and hit with a simulation of liver failure, all of the rats on the normal diet died, but only 17% of the rats eating the 5% glycine diet died. Those numbers are huge. 
5% glycine isn't that much glycine. What we know is that most people don't consume enough glycine, and that can cause problems, especially if you're consuming a ton of methionine or cysteine. In fact, if you're taking whey as your primary source of protein, which some people choose to do, you're almost by definition getting methionine or cysteine overload. That's why we made upgraded whey, which is extremely powerful in just a couple tablespoons. So you get all the stimulating and glutathione benefits of whey without needing to take, you know, a half a cup of whey protein powder every day. That's also why we recommend things like eggs and beef and other basically whole foods. And Coming up soon, we're going to be launching a super clean, really affordable gelatin product that will help you prevent that problem. If you want to go all out, our hydrolyzed collagen protein is very high in glycine, and that's what I use myself. It's what I give my kids, which is the most absorbable source of collagen peptides that are high in glycine. So that actually helps you to detox yourself and to be able to handle toxins better, as well as giving you better skin and hair and things like that. But this was just a cool study because those numbers were, were different. You know, half the rats on regular food die. The ones eating 5% glycine were essentially immune to those endotoxins. That's cool. You can find links to everything we talked about in our show notes at bulletproofexec.com. We would totally appreciate it if you left us a positive ranking on iTunes and signed up for our email list at bulletproofexec.com slash mail. We post a full transcript and links to everything we talked about today on our blog at bulletproofexec.com. This means everything we talked about is searchable and any product that we mentioned, whether it's ours or something that we have nothing to do with, will be linked to so you can find it without having to just try and guess. Army, take care. Bye, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.